Hey, family, I'm an alcoholic. My name's Charlie. Charlie. It's great to be here. Um, I was ready to leave after Kevin spoke. You know, I mean, that was, y'all didn't have to agree that quick. <laughs> I want to congratulate Michelle and Kevin and Monica. Congratulations on years of sobriety. And uh, those folks who took uh, months, but especially, I want to say this right, Gracia and Patrick, congratulations. Um, I just reached into my pocket and uh, for whatever it's worth, my sobriety date is July 10th, 1988. But in my pocket, I carry a 24 hour chip. So we do this deal one day at a time. And, uh, and I need to remember that. This is a, Tom, thanks for asking me to, to speak here. It's been a long time since I've spoken at an AA meeting, I think. Um, but today seems to be like a really amazing day to do that. You know, um, it's Father's Day. Without this program, I would not have been a father. Nor would I have been the man that that little girl needed. Uh, she's 33 now, and uh, she tells me what to do. <laughs> That's what daughters do. But it's also Juneteenth, and uh, some of you people may be familiar with that. Uh, you know, the Emancipation Proclamation was signed in January of 1863. But folks in Galveston, Texas, didn't know about it until today, June 19, 1865, two and a half years before they realized that they were free. That's like me in the program of Alcoholics Anonymous. I knew about the program well before I participated in the program. So let me tell you a little bit about it. I, um, I'm an East Coast kid, grew up in Cambridge, Mass. And uh, it's, a, it's a great city, a great city, uh, 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 really a multi-ethnic city, um, city of universities, Harvard, MIT, Radcliffe, et cetera, many. Um, I used to go through Harvard to get to my high school and that's as close as I got to going to Harvard. <laughs> I like Kevin. Uh, did my college on the installment plan. <laughs> and they kind of asked me, you know, you have a way too much fun. You might want to take a little bit of a break. Um, so it was a really great city. And, and, and I'm still friends with people I knew from kindergarten, which may, well, I'm not going to tell you how old I am. Um, but it's, it's, it's been a long time. And uh, all of us still talk, you know, and it was an amazing time. And I'm, I'm gonna bring in a little bit about this emancipation and so forth, because I didn't realize how important um, that stuff was to me. Um, friends with a multi multiplicity of people in different, as I said, ethnicities in, in the city, but once you get into high school, things changed a little bit. You know, at the little 
colored kid that was real okay to hang around with as a young man, it became a little different. And, uh, and I started feeling that, uh, things that I hadn't felt before. And, uh, and I got uncomfortable. And not to say I wasn't uncomfortable before that. I'll talk a little bit about my family. My, um, my mom's dad uh, was very familiar with alcohol. As a matter of fact, he died from this disease out behind some bucket of blood gin mill in the Bronx. Uh, the family was disrupted because of his drinking. Financially, they were in disarray because of his drinking. And uh, that had an impact certainly on my mom, which then subsequently had an impact on me, which I didn't realize. I uh, didn't realize it actually until I did some, some stuff with Ancestry and, and got some information. Uh, on my dad's side, there was alcohol, uh, alcoholism as well. And growing up, I'm an only child. Uh, one of the things that I really wanted was what I would think was my dad's blessing. And I didn't realize how much I, I wanted that. I think men want that from their dad. And, um, and it didn't show up the way I expected. But I also didn't realize what his life had been like and what his experience had been. You know, he ended up fighting in World War II and came home to broken promises things that they said you will have because you fight, he didn't have. And he tried to teach me that life might be unfair and that I would have to fight for some of the things that I wanted. I didn't realize that and it hurt. My mom, because of the stuff of her dad, the financial insecurity wanted me to have an education and pushed me to do that and said, you can do this, you can do that. And that, um, fear that of what I had to accomplish um, made me uncomfortable. As a matter of fact, on my first inventory, um, the word potential was one of the things that I put down. I hated that. Oh, he's got so much potential. But he just doesn't do it. You know, and, and it seemed like there were so many things that I just didn't do. And I felt less than, and I felt uncomfortable. And I found out that I could drink to get rid of some of that discomfort. Um, at the age of 14, my dad passed away. And I was told, you're gonna be, you're the man of the family. I don't know anything about that. How are you supposed to be the man of the family? And I was scared. A month after he died, I went into the hospital. I had uh, some people, scoliosis, a curvature of the spine. So I was in the hospital for a year, in bed, in a body cast for seven months. Uh, but it was a hospital school for crippled kids. That was the name of it, hospital school for crippled children. So I saw kids and I knew that I was getting out of there and I was going to walk and I was going to play ball. And some of these kids would never be able to do that. So I had a certain um, gratitude for my life and, and a, a certain compassion for them. And while I was there, and this is real important. Um, 
for me. You know, we come into Alcoholics Anonymous and we talk about finding a power greater than ourselves. And we talk about it can be anything that you like. And I, I agree with that. I happen to have a higher power and my higher power has a name. And uh, so here I am in the hospital and the minister from my church comes to give me communion. And uh, it's kind of humorous in a way. The nurse was taking care of me, was Catholic. And then I'm backdoor Catholic, I'm Episcopalian. At the time I was. So I guess with Catholics, you can't eat before communion. So she wouldn't let me eat and I'm starving. And I'm like, I'm not Catholic. She said, but I don't, she was Irish too. She had the brogue, the whole thing. I won't, I won't do it because I'll screw it up. But she told me, I, I, my first resentment. Um, so my pastor came and he gave me communion. And I felt something. I felt something. And I ran from that thing that I felt for so long, for a real long time. I was 14. Uh, then 14 or 15, and uh, I believe I was 39 or 40 before I walked back into a church and accepted Christ as my savior. I was terrified. I had a God of my misunderstanding. And my misunderstanding was my particular God was punishing and punitive and was out to get me. All right, I'll stop there. I was wrong. Anyway, um, I believe I started drinking on my dad's knee, sipping his uh, Valentine ale at about four years old. My mom, when I was teething, I remember she said she used to tell me, no, I don't remember then, but she would put paragoric on my gums. None of those things made me an alcoholic. None of them. I have this allergy. And then I have an obsession. That allergy causes this chronic disease. It will not be a problem if I don't pick up the drink. It's just like eating strawberries or shellfish or whatever, which I have no problem not eating shellfish. People love to sit next to me in clam bakes. You know, give me a lobster. I'll take you. Know. You can have my chicken. Um, I think I'm getting the short end of this, but anyway, I um, I started drinking then, and I remember the first time I really drank. I was probably a freshman in high school. And I was uncomfortable, and I, I I went back to a dance at my grammar school. And I had a half pint by myself. I started drinking by myself real early, hiding it real early. And, um, and then I had this other thought. Uh, I ran track, but I hated to practice. So I ran the dash. It was only 50 yards. And, uh, and I smoked cigarettes and I drank. And I didn't practice that potential thing again. Um, the only thing I was potential was a potential alcoholic. So 
I remember, I think it was my junior year, and in Massachusetts, the drinking age was 21. New York, the drinking age, I think, was 17 or 18. And uh, so the Nationals were being held in Madison Square Garden, and a number of us went down because a number of guys had, uh, ran well enough to run in the Nationals. And I remember getting some tango. I don't know if they have tango out this way. It's, it's vodka and orange juice already mixed in the bottle. And uh, that got me kicked out of the hotel. <laughs> but that's all I really wanted to do was drink that, for that particular excursion. And, uh, and I continued doing that. And I, had, I, I really hadn't thought about that in a long, long time how that drinking also escalated. I got into college, it was in the early 60s, mid 60s, 1964. And um, everything was burning. You know, draft cards were burning, bras were burning, cities were burning, reefer was burning, and I'm, you know, and I'm trying to do it all. And uh, that's when I got a 1.1 GPA and they asked me, they didn't ask me, they told me that I needed to take a break. Uh, and I got a buddy of mine was going to school up in the Midwest and uh, he got me into that school. So I went out and the first night I was there, I got drunk, I got thrown in jail. I remember waking up on that metal cot, looking out that window and saying, where am I and what happened? Those kinds of things didn't happen all the time, but they really didn't happen when I wasn't drinking. You know, as uh, we say back home, every time I drank, I didn't get in trouble. But every time I got in trouble, I had been drinking. So that particular day, the judge uh, said, you know, we don't think you need to be in this particular state. You give us $300 and you can leave, but you got to leave. And I left and uh, I was so embarrassed. I didn't let anyone know. My family, as Kevin talked about, those people that I hurt, you know, looking into their faces. And that's one of the worst things. I could deny a whole bunch, but I couldn't deny the pain that I was creating for people. And I, I really, when I want to get honest, I couldn't deny the pain that I was feeling inside, but I didn't know a solution. The only solution I knew was to drink drug or chase a skirt. And uh, all of those things had a lot of short-term solutions, but nothing lasted. And it was, it was horrible. It was horrible. I, um, like I said, I hid out for about two weeks in New York and no one knew where I was. Uh, I remember how they found me. <laughs> I had some friends who were bartenders at the Palm Cafe, which is a bar next to the Apollo Theater. That I, friends of the family, they caught me. <laughs> They said, you're a little raggedy ass home. And uh, so I did. And I got back into that college uh, a couple of years later and got my degree and came out and we got good jobs. I was teaching school back then. I'm teaching school. I'm teaching special ed and I'm drinking. I'm drinking. 
I get recruited to be a probation officer. Well, I knew about crime and stuff like that. And, and, and they needed a person of color, you know? And so there was a lot of positions that I got asked into where I was the first person of color, which is great, but it's also uncomfortable. And um, I remember in the credenza behind my desk, I would have a bottle, but I wasn't the only guy doing it. So I figured, well, if I'm not the only guy doing it, everything, it's okay. And I drank and I left that job out of resentment and took another job, lasted about a year because it was one of those ones I jumped into. I got a resentment, oh, I'll do that. And it was something I shouldn't have done. It was like getting in a relationship that you shouldn't be in. I love that. I think about it just, Mickey, Mickey Bush just came into my head. Relationship, R-E-L-A-T-I-O-N-S-H-I-P. Really exciting love affair. It turns into outrageous nightmare. Sobriety hangs in peril. <laughs> you know, so. I, um, Jody, Kevin, wake up. <laughs> I'm talking. Jody gave me the thumbs up. I think Kevin gave me the finger. Um, so I left that job and I got recruited into this wonderful job that I really wanted. And, uh, but I'm drinking. And man, I'm uncomfortable. And I thought, one of the things I thought was, well, if I get married, that'll fix it. I'll say, because that's a responsibility. Man, and I think of how unfair that was to my wife at the time. You know, um, I'm so glad we have a friendly, kind relationship today. And we can talk, um, but it was truly unfair. And that was one of the uh, amends that I will continue to make. You know, I could say, hey, I apologize, but there's things that I still need to do uh, in that. And we're not together, but it's just the right thing to do, um, to love people. Um, so I want to get to the part where I got sober. That's, that was just real important to me. Um, I've been working in operations with this particular company, major international company. And uh, they asked me would I um, consider doing management training. And like I said, I came out of education. I love doing that kind of stuff. I said, absolutely. So I was on a training venture in um, King of Prussia, Pennsylvania. And I told myself, don't drink, don't drink. And uh, the night before I was to do my final team teach, I went and said, well, I, I'll go for a run because exercise is good for you. And, and I used to do that kind of stuff all the time. You know, if I exercise, I can drink. I'm glad you guys are laughing because, man, it is so important to know. I'm so important even today to know I'm not alone. Um, so I go for this run. I come back. 
to the hotel and I'm walking back to my room and I walk by the bar and thought, Heineken, it'd be pretty nice. I remember the Heineken and then I remember ordering a cognac and I don't remember anything after that. I remember the next morning, knowing I have to go in. Oh, by the way, the company I work for is an airline. So drinking is, you're out. So, but Kevin, this, will you remind me? I call the guy I'm teaching with. <laughs> I can't come in. But really, I was talking, I could talk like this. <laughs> you know, I know a couple of you have done this before. Um, so I said, I'll come in a little afternoon. And I did. But I knew that smell was still on me. I just knew it. And I was terrified. I'm going to lose this job. By that time, I was married. I'm going to lose that. I'm going to, I just everything is going to go down the porcelain device. And he never said anything. And I got the job. And I have, eventually, after 28 years, I retired from that company. But I knew that I had a problem. I had been living in denial for a long time, telling myself a lie. I'm telling myself a lie. Here's another Mickey for you. D-E-N-I-A-L. Don't even notice I am lying. <laughs> I'm lying to myself and trying to convince myself and losing the argument. So I go to church. Actually, I take it back. I had gone to church about uh, nine months before. I said it took me a long time to get back to church. And um, in my particular church, it's one of those where you come forward to accept Christ. And I wanted to, but I was scared. I was terrified. All my life, I felt there was potential that I wasn't meeting. Now the great authority is going to tell me that? Oh, hell no. I'm terrified. But my foot, I could feel it trying to go. And finally, one day, my ex had come. Oh, oh. I was outside and she said, I'm going to church. And I, I really feel like I was in a daze. I followed, went to church, sitting there. And I walked up. Tears, snot. And I, I gave up. I surrendered, but I kept drinking. I kept drinking for another nine months. This is prior to that episode in, in King of Prussia because it, it, hopefully this doesn't offend me. I had accepted Christ as savior, but not as my Lord. I didn't trust him. I didn't trust God to be who they say God is. And the God that I needed, the higher power that I needed, again, call it however you choose to, that this, was for me and um, that day something changed 
And I made a phone call to central office and I asked uh, where there was a meeting. And I, that particular night, I, I went to a meeting. I got all dressed up so no one would know that I was new. And <laughs> second resentment, woman came up and gave me a 24-hour chip. But that led me on my path. A month after that, I had to go to um, a training session for the company. And, and I don't know, I, I meant to put my watch out here and I didn't do it, Jesse, but one of you guys let me know. 15? Wow. <laughs> so, man, I guess. I'm, I'm, I'm there, I'm sober now. Hey, Charlie, I got sober. So I got sober that I haven't had a drink since that day. So July 10th, 1988 was a Sunday. That happened to be a Wednesday night meeting because I had a couple of reservations. Um, I actually had called central office and asked them to mail me uh, the meeting book. And they said, well, we can tell you where it is. And I was like, no, nah, that's okay, send it to me. And I hung up and God slapped me up beside the back of my head and I called him back. And of course my ego, I went, I, you probably remember me, I just called. <laughs> right. So I went to that meeting and, 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 uh, and that's why I carry a 24 hour chip. I want to remember that. And uh, I started on this, 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 this journey. And uh, a month later, I had to go to a, a training session, a corporate training session. I was terrified because the last time I had been in corporate, I was stinking drunk. And uh, now how am I going to do this? And so I was sitting outside. Um, Sorry, I don't have a phone number or email address for Mary Bray. Who would you like to FaceTime with? <laughs> Glad I ain't got a lady because I really don't know who that was. <laughs> Rick, Tom, Rick, no, honest, never mind. Methinks the man doth protest too much. So, um, man, I really lost track there. Um, I go to Memphis to the meeting and um, but before I go, like I'm saying, I'm terrified. I'm out in my backyard. My neighbor run, comes by who's in the program. And I scream out to him, Richie, Richie. Richie stops. And he does what we've learned to do in here. I said, Richie, I'm going to this thing. I stopped drinking, but I'm terrified. What do I do? He said, well, let me tell you what I do. Not what, he didn't tell me what I should do. He told me what he did. He said, um, don't let anyone get a drink for you. By the way, we're going to have open bar and all that. Don't let anyone get a drink for you. Get your own. And if you put it down, don't pick it up. Get another one. He said, get club soda, put a lime in it or a lemon. No one will know the difference. He said, and if you get uncomfortable, you can leave. And I wanted to ask him, I said, did you hear me say about open bar? You know, and, and um, he said, you can leave. And those concepts were, I mean, they were unfathomable. Really? And he asked me if I had a sponsor. And I said, no. He said, well, why don't you ask Smitty? Now, Smitty, I had known since I was six years old. I'm now 41. So I go and I ask Smitty to be my sponsor. Smitty says, it'd be an honor. 
be your sponsor. So this is a program of suggestions. When it leaves my lips, it's a suggestion. When it gets to your ears, it's a must. <laughs> but I took it. Not but I took it, and I took it. So we sat going to meetings. And, and the way he would say going to meetings, he, said, he would call me and say, we're going to meet and get in the car. That'd be it. Get in the car. We go to a meeting and he's talking with all the old timers. And I figure I can talk with the old timers. He's like, no, you go sit up front, sit up intensive care. <laughs> we don't need you being distracted, child. There's pretty just like here. You know, there's people that could distract. He said, you sit up front in intensive care. So I sat up front in intensive care. And he told me to identify and not compare. And he told me that people who don't go to meetings don't hear what happens to people who don't go to meetings. And I listened. And because of my job, I did a lot of traveling and I heard meetings in all these different places. Now, back home, we did the steps out of the 12 and 12. And it wasn't really until I came out here to California in 1998, which I had not planned to do, uh, that I got really involved with the big book, the beautiful book. And uh, so I worked at 12 and 12, the big book, and what I call the big, big book. They all work together for me and I have to use them all. And I'm privileged to use them all. My life has become absolutely amazing. I have hiccups in my life, speed bumps, just like everybody else, but I don't have to drink. I have the steps. Here's another one for you. Steps, S-T-E-P-S. I got to give credit to Mickey again. I like the blonde woman over there. She's really paying attention. She's like, what? <laughs> Solution to every problem, sober. Solution to every problem solved. And I love these steps. I'm powerless over alcohol and my life is unmanageable. That's an amazing concept because my life can still be unmanageable without alcohol. Yet I still have the steps, the solution. Then I came to believe that power greater than myself could restore me to sanity. Came to believe that, not in, because I already had believed in a power, but the power I believed in, I had a misunderstanding of. So I came to believe that, that power cared for me, loved me, got you, thank you, partner. Cared for me, loved me, and wanted the best for me, and could restore me to sanity which meant I was nuts, nuts, not using the steps. <laughs> Thank you, Mickey Bing. Okay, so then it says I made a decision. And one of the steps, one of the things in there that became real important to me that someone taught me out here was that set aside prayer. God, help me to set aside everything I think I know about you, me, the steps, this program for an open mind and a new understanding of you, me, the steps in this program. Help me to know the truth. So I did a third step and I take, I take 
and say the third step every day, every day, to remind myself of my position in this lineage, if you would, that includes all things. And I've learned to love in all things. I love what Chuck C says in a new pair of glasses. I love you. I don't, it's none of my business if you don't love me, but I love you. And I've learned to do that in this program. So I did that third step and the evidence of the third step for me is taking the fourth and fifth steps. Up until then, but I love it said take the searching and fearless moral inventory. I have yet to take a fearless inventory. I fear less, <laughs> but fearless, no, just being true. But every time I see that, more and more of the fear goes away and I get to see what scares me and I get to see what it talks about in step five, the exact nature of my wrong. Not the things that I did, which are important, but they're important to identify what's the nature. You know, um, Maslow has a hierarchy of needs that we all have, whether it's safety, security, home, uh, relationship, but how I go about it might be inappropriate. I might be stepping out ahead of my higher power. I might be doing some things that are just not the right way to do it. I get to see the nature, what I think is important. And then I get to have my higher power remove those that don't work for him. Because some of them, he lets me swing because he can use them. That's what I have to believe. And because I believe he still loves me, then maybe some of those things he's using are benefiting somebody else. And then that's okay. Doesn't mean I like it, but you see my higher power, and this was one of the things that's real important to me, did not call me to like all things. He didn't call me to like all behavior, but he's called me to love all people. And the steps show me how to do that. They give me the opportunity to do that. And you know, the selfish, self-centered thing that I heard from Brother Fred when I did my first fifth step, because when he finished with me, he went, sounds kind of selfish, doesn't it? And it broke my heart because I had never seen myself like that. But today I can see it and I can still be that way. And some of that selfishness means I don't have to carry these resentments. I'm selfish enough that I'm gonna work that I don't have to carry some of the stuff. And I do that by coming to these meetings. And I also go to, uh, if I might, a Christian uh, recovery program that works. One of my buddies was just here. He and I had gone on mission trips that made me feel real comfortable because I had an opportunity to sit in an indigenous nation circle with brothers who were brown that allowed me to tell the truth that I had not been able to tell in over 25 years of sobriety at that time that I can now do. So the importance of getting around people that are 
the, 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 maybe are similar. But what I found, because I told the truth there, I can do it here. And I realized that we are more alike than we are different. And that's amazing. And what Chuck C says is true. I love you. This program is absolutely amazing. I wouldn't give it up for the world. I don't want to give it up. I hope I continue to work the steps that are in front of me. This is a way of life. Back home, back home in Boston, we would do what they call AWOLs. Now out here in this military community, I know what AWOL means, but back there, it means a way of life. And it goes through the steps. And um, I'm really blessed. I'm blessed to have a higher power that I know loves me and cares for me, wants the best for me. Puts me in a headlock every once in a while, throws a noogie on my head. That's my kid. I can see God roll his eyes, but that's, that's my pride. Um, and I hope, I really hope the same for anyone in here and anyone out there on the uh, Zoom, that you find a power that works for you, that you have the willingness to surrender, that you've hit the place where you go, I can't do this by myself, and I'm willing to try something different. And find somebody that'll work with you who understands this program. You know, people talk about the fourth step and there's so many different ways to do it. Find the one that works for you and the person that works for you, the person you can trust. Here's another one for you. Sponsor. Sober person offering newcomer suggestions on recovery. Someone who cares for you, who's been there in the pit, who says, I know the way out. And they'll help you. They won't carry you most of the time. But they'll, they'll walk with you. And I think that's uh, one of the things we all want. Relationships. We do this in relationship. We do this in community. Community is so critical. And I've got a great one. Thanks.